Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. On tonight's program, I'm taking a bit of an unusual twist by talking to a fund manager who looks after both a small cap fund and emerging companies fund. His name is David Allingham from Italy Griffiths, and he's really been doing pretty well as an AFR story actually showed this week. Then we talked to the old stage of Charlie Aitken from Aitken Investment Management to see how he's investing right now. He's been a big fan of Microsoft ever since he's been coming on the program. And anyone who listened to him has made a bit of money because Microsoft has done very, very well. What's he buying now? That's the question I want to ask Charlie. And then Dr. Nicola Powell, who's the chief economist at Domain. And I wanted to test out the, um, the Chris Joy uh, suggestion or prediction that house prices could fall by 25%. I asked Nicola to do a bit of an analysis of um, Chris's predictions, and she's not quite sure whether he'll get it right. So let's just see what Dr. Nicola Power has to say about Chris Joy's big, bold, scary 25% fall in house prices. So that's the show. Let's kick off now with David Allingham. Well, joining me now is David Allingham, his portfolio manager at Ely Griffiths, and he's connected to two smaller uh, cap funds, which you'll tell us about. David, thanks for coming to the program. Thank you for having me, Pete. Good to ca- good to catch up. Yeah, same here. Tell us about the two funds that you're connected with. Thank you. Yeah, no, look, we, so we, Ely Griffiths Group has two strategies, as you say. We've got our small companies fund. That's sort of been the flagship fund of the business, about 17 or 18 years old, very long-term track record. Um, It's a fund that's really meant for people who don't feel a bit nervous coming into small caps. You know, it's obviously a bit dangerous. That's where the risks are up a little bit. So this is a sort of an entree into small caps, if you will. Um, That's our small cap fund. Um, You know, if you look at our emerging companies fund, that's only been launched around five years ago. That's a little bit more high octane. So it's for the the more savvy investor who realises that, look, if I'm going to go into smalls, I want, I want to be a little bit further up the risk curve. And the idea being that, look, you might have a little bit more volatility being in that fund in the short term, but in the long term, that volatility should equal higher returns. So we've sort of got those two strategies, you know, for, for different types of investors. Okay. So just take the emerging uh, fund first. How many um, companies would be in it? We run portfolios both the same, around 50, okay? So we have a range, typically 35 to 55 is the level of of, of stock count that we'd like to see. I think anything beyond that, we feel like you're collecting stocks and your conviction just has to wane in the tail. So look, in a perfect world, I think the future is actually going to involve more concentration, more conviction. I think investors want to feel that there's a more concentrated portfolio. They don't want 10 portfolios with 60 stocks in each. You end up with 600 stocks. You know, you might as well get the conviction and the concentration up. And so, look, we, we run in that 35 to 55 range. In a bull market like we're in now, there's deals, there's IPOs, there's secondary sell downs. You do tend to see the stock count drift up a little bit as the, you know, we want the rising tide broadens the portfolio. Um, but that's effectively how we run them, Pete. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's, let's imagine you've got 50 in the fund. In any one year, how many do you really expect to kick the lights out to, to cover the, the ones that are going to be a slower burn but still have potential? Great question. And, you know, when it comes to thinking about running a portfolio, you've got to have you've got to have the stocks that are working now that have the momentum that, are, you know, you can see the payback. You've got to be on those and those have to be positioned appropriately. 
I think you need the rump of those sort of steady grinding stocks that is going to look after you year in, year out, that are sort of lower volatility in nature. And you also, I think, have to be investing a portion of the portfolio in next year's stocks. You know, you can't, if, you, if you're on every single winner, it'll work very well in the short term, but you do tend to blow up. And I think if you look at microcaps or our, where our emerging companies fund hunts in that XASX 200 space, typical market cap of 500 million. If you look at the track record of most managers in that space over the long term, they tend to have one or two good years every five and they end up just blowing up. You have a, you know, you shoot the lights out, everyone thinks you're a hero and then you give it all back. So what we want to do and what we've designed with our emerging companies fund, because we had many, many years to plan it, was something that was an all weather style of product. It was something that we could do. We could bring a bit of conservatism to a racy part of the market and deliver clients, I guess, a fund that they can be in and not lose sleep at night about having to time themselves. They can back us to run it through the cycle. And so is, is the is the strategy, and I know with our financial planning clients, we often have a like a core and satellite approach and, and the core pr- provides a great base. And then we venture outside to go to the satellites for, for, for companies that look like they've got a good upside, got nice momentum, all that sort of stuff. But we're not we're not betting the bank on those, but they add a nice bit of alpha to the overall returns. Yeah, look, that's right. Look, we we what we strive to do, sometimes it's hard to do in practice. We'd like to see 30 to 40 percent at least of the portfolio in our top 10 to 15 names. Yeah. I think when we look back at our attribution or our performance, what's driven our, our, our performance versus the market over time, it's really primarily come from the higher conviction end of the portfolio. So it's those stocks where you're really convicted, got strong conviction, and you can bet so accordingly. That's where the alpha is. If you look at you know the tail, yes, you can have some huge winners down there. But if you haven't got the conviction to put a big bet in place, you do sometimes you don't bank all that performance, you know. So we, we find generally trying to get 50% of your portfolio in your top 10 or 15 is the way to go. So over the year, what's been the, the best performing company? The one you said, you little beauty on a very regular basis. Oh, look, oh, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, when you're running, run, running, I guess we're talking 80, 50, 80, 90 stocks across two portfolios, you ask a question, something like, I can't even think of one. <laughs> but um, that's not the case today. Oh, look, I think, um, look, Life360, has been a terrific, terrific stock for us. Mm. Um, I think it's a classic example of a fallen angel. It was a very poor IPO, a lot of confusion about the stock, got it, got that stale, tainted IPO flavour to it. We did the work, watched it. We saw the momentum turning. We got a sense for what was happening around their customer usage, modelled it extensively, and we bought that stock in both funds mm. around 5 or $6. And, look, I've got to be hand on heart, I didn't think it would be $13 come, come sort of November this year. It's been exceptional. They've upgraded earnings four times. It's a big beneficiary of the reopening trade because it's all about, you know, it's a family safety app, so it's all about mobility and that kind of thing. So we think they're very early on in the monetization. 40 million active customers around the globe. I mean, I think, you've, you know, you've got a business here that's growing customers and got scale almost like an afterpay has, you know, if you think about the customer numbers. So that, that business excites us. They're talking about listing in the US um, and where we think the multiples are a lot higher. So that, you know, that's all been part of the rewrite there. So that's been a great one. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I think they presented our small cap conference. They are actually an American company listed here. And, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg's 
sister got on the board at one stage as well. You know it better. You know it better than me, Pete. Exactly. Yeah. You're right. So, um, Randy, Randy Zuckerberg's on the board. Yeah. Um, she joined, and I, I mean, if you jump onto the onto the quarterly calls and have a listen to her, she get they, they had her introduce herself on the quarterly call, and she, you know, she's obviously got highly credentialed and 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 in her own right a very successful yeah. woman. Um, so that was a great endorsement from a board level. You're right. It's the U.S. business. So again, you always scratch your head when you see why is a U.S. company listing in Australia? What's that all about? Now, I think you put that all behind it. A couple of years post the IPO, I think that business is, is in great shape. Um, I think there's acquisitions and monetization still to come. So that's been a great one um, for the for both funds. Do, do you have access to any buy now, pay later companies that may well not be shooting the lights out now, but you think have upside? Because the argument is a lot of them, it's a crowded space now. And, you know, Afterpay obviously has done well. Zip's done pretty well. But after that, it's pretty well daylight, isn't it? Look, I think you're right, and I look. We were big backers of Afterpay, and, and very publicly so. Um, and so I had a, had a terrific experience there backing Anthony and Nick. It's a very unique business model. It's a, it's a new business model. Um, the commercials around it are are relatively tight, so it's a it's a big scale game. And I think now that your lights of Square involved, you've got PayPal there. Um, I think you know you're, you're dealing with big competitors with a lot of funding. I think the small players are going to get squeezed. So I think if you're buying, that doesn't mean there isn't an opportunity. When you look at Sezzle today, sub $5, Zip has rolled over. That's breaching new lows now. They they all look terrible on the charts. They look extremely vulnerable, but I think you're there for consolidation. I think there's still a chance a few of these things get together. There might be the odd takeout. That's always a hard game to play, though, because you've got to sit and wait it out, and the momentum is not on your side. So we sold all of our afterpay once it went into the ASX 100, which is part of what we have to do. We never recycled into any of the peers. We just didn't see the same compelling scale option um, that afterpay um, offers. So, so we're not there at all at the moment. Okay. Have you gone into lithium, and has the boat sailed for people who – so I'm not in it, but it looks like it's on the way out. Look, we are. We've been in lithium for 12 months. Um, you know, you'd always wish. I mean, given what's happened, we wish we had more. But we've been a we've been a, a pretty you know uh, convicted investor in that space. The way we play this stuff generally, Pete, is you know we, we've looked at you know we own Pilbara. Uh, minerals and we own independence group we think those businesses both have the potential to be vertically integrated so they can produce hard right hard rock but they can also get the hydroxide side the chemical set side right which means you've got the vertical integrations we we think that'll be strategic in time um i think they also are both in production and enjoying the very high prices at the moment and generating the cash where the speculations really moved to in the last quarter has been in the pre-development phase space. So if you look at the likes of Lion Town and some of these names, now that's a great project. There's a lot priced in for that business as it stands today at pre-development. But that doesn't mean it can't go on. I think the sector, I mean, hand on heart, you have to say the green decarbonisation story is going to be one of those massive generational shifts that's going to work more than it's not going to work. So being long that space is important. We've done very well out of owning Paladin, um, so I think the uranium stories are a fantastic one, and I think there's still a lot more upside in Paladin, um, given what we think is going to happen with the Sprott Uranium Trust. Their plans to list in the US, you know, had a very, very deep recession in that commodity, and it just feels like the financial markets are really cornering the market there for a very sort of a very a sort of spot price outcome that could really drive Paladin, you know, from much higher than it is to already. And that it plays into the green story too, Pete. You know, so yeah. And post-Glasgow, even pre-Glasgow, there was a lot more positive talk about the possibility of uranium. And I think 
there are a lot of uh, probably, I guess, Scott Morrison supporters saying, well, maybe there's a possibility that technology will come along and make uranium safe enough for countries to say, yeah, we'll give it a go. It won't be Australia, I don't think. You know, I think we're, yeah. we're pretty set on our part, so I think that's done. But, you know, look, if you look at, I mean, the US is 20% nuclear from their energy mix. France is 80 you know, I, I, so this has been proven. It's proven clean technology that provides base load. There's clearly been, you know, the, those odd instances that are disastrous. But um, look, I think the world's coming a long way from a technological standpoint. I think we've got the European taxonomy where they're looking to include it as part of the green story. We know that Biden's very engaged with nuclear. He's looking to subsidise domestic uranium production. Everywhere you look, it's very, very pop. It's very, very promising for the nuclear industry, and I think most people have demand for nuclear or uranium running at about two or three percent. I mean, I think if we get a bit of this sort of green incentive on board, you could see a bit of an acceleration. And I'll leave you with one thing on uranium, Pete. I only discovered this doing reading three or four months ago. If I go back to the last commodity boom back in 04, you know, back to, oh, to, to 2003 through to 2012, say, you know, China went from being a small part of most commodities to 50 percent. You know, that was the big change, right? If you look at uranium, China is currently about 15% of global uranium demand. By 2030, just based on the nuclear rollout they're doing, they've got a, a huge building pro, build-out program underway, they are going to be 45. So I really like that dynamic. When you see China entering a commodity market and really stepping their market share up, to me that talks to a commodity that's got some firm underpinnings. And so, hence, another another leg in the uranium story. Okay, one last one before I ask you a few questions about the fund. What's the latest addition to either one of your funds that you think has uh, upside? So, look, I think um, we we quite like the gold space at the moment, just tactically. Um, I think, you know, into the, you, you know, there's always this theory, the Robin Hood theory, you know, that take from the rich and give to the poor in the market, and that happens at the end of each year. So you tend to see sell your winners, buy your losers, you know, there's a bit of that. So what's what's underperformed as we head into the new year? And I think the gold sector has been a chronic under, underperformer. So yeah. we've been adding a bit to the gold names. Um, we think the gold names could be on for a bit of a run. Seasonally, they, they tend to be strong over December, January. Just if you go back and look for the last 20 years, gold stocks and gold tend to do quite well for some reason. So you're in a nice seasonal period. Um, they've been big underperformers. You've got that Robin Hood effect coming through. And the gold price, which is interesting, has been stubbornly resilient. You know, rising US dollar, rising inflation, rising like synchronised global growth, cyclicals going to the moon, all that stuff. But gold's actually held in there around this $1,800 level relatively well. So we think there's a chance it's primed for a bit of an upside move. We might see the gold stocks continue to do well as they've turned the corner just in the last week or two. So that would be um, a sector we've looked at. We quite like DeGray in that part of the market. Um, and we've also added to our position in Capricorn Metals, CMN. Um, Capricorn is the old Mark Clark who built Regis Resources into an ASX 100 company. He's now uh, taken Capricorn Metals by the horns and, and, and driving that. We think that's got a bright future as well. One last, last question is Bitcoin. Have you get, done anything to get some exposure to potential either Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in any way? Um, interesting question. I don't want to scare my clients off. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting space, but I've been a believer. I went to the US in 2016 and came away having met some very smart people, by the way, in, in, you know, in, investor types that just sort of said, look, we don't know. Just put 1% of your wealth into it. Just put a little bit of your money in there. Every now and again, there's a generational change, like the computer chip. If you put a bit of money into Intel in the 70s, you know, just on the, you know, so 
I like that as a concept, very small, but, you know, um, outsized returns if it works. So I think, look, the, the work I've done, I, I actually think Ethereum um, is the one that looks the most interesting, primarily because there's a very, very strong use case. Um, a lot of online applications and games are built on the Ethereum blockchain and to play those games or be involved in those online sort of protocols, you need to transfer fiat into Ethereum to do it. And I think that use case to me, I suddenly realised, hang on, if you want to do all these things, you've got to have a thing. Like that, mate, I just, I can see as we transition onto online and more digitally, I can see demand for Ethereum rising. So to answer your question, I do have a little bit of Ethereum. I've gone through the process. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about um, going through some of the exchanges and getting it all done. And, and look, for me, it's just a bit of a, I'm interested. I'm always wanting to learn, always looking to broaden my horizons. And I think having a bit of the skin in your game in that stuff will, will help will help educate me. Okay. <laughs> For people who are listening and watching this and they're not sure, I'm going to ask this question even though I know the answer. Are your funds listed or are they um, funds that people just subscribe um, to to your company? They're, un they're both unlisted funds, Pete. So they're not, they're not currently available on the ASX. So you've got to go through the online application form, which is why we have no clients. <laughs> I'm just joking, but it is an awful process. But it, it, look, once you've done it once, you're in. Um, it, look, there that is clunky. We are we are considering listing our small cap strategy. Mm. We think there's demand out there for people who sometimes head into the water. They go and try out the test their test their skills in small caps. It's a very work intensive part of the market. You'll get a couple right, you get a few wrong, you end up square or down. We think having a manager that specialises in that works full time, 12 hours a day, seven days a week on running a portfolio in that space, there's a great need for that. There's actually performance out there, which means there's economics for it. And we think if people can press a button on Comsec or via their broker, um, you know, then then I think that that will open open a part of the market that has just not been interested in filling out forms. Um, so we have quite a healthy retail business, Pete. You know, across both funds, we've got good pools, circa eight or nine hundred million dollars already of retail fund across those two strategies. We think having one of them listed will be uh, will open us to the stockbroking community, the direct investors who just don't want to fill out the forms. Exactly right, mate. Thanks for coming to the program. It's David Allingham from Ely Griffiths. Thank you, Pete. Cheers. Well, joining us now is Charlie Aitken, the founder of Aitken Investment Management, a fund manager. Hi, Charlie. Good afternoon, Peter. How are you? Very good. I've been thinking about you lately because Microsoft has been doing really, really well. And I was wondering how long you've been talking up. Notice I don't use the word spook, as a lot of people in the media love to uh, afford people like you and me as spookers. But if we if we tip a company that we like and it does really well, I, I kind of think it's, it's more like providing brilliant financial education. What do you think, Charles? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> look, we also don't want to put the kiss of death on Microsoft. It's been a good investment for us. It remains, you know, one of the world's best companies. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. It's still in a wonderful position, Pete. Like, you know, they put up their prices recently, so they've got pricing power. And what is vitally important in a world where there is a bit of inflation is pricing power, your ability to raise your prices above inflation, which Microsoft are doing. So they yeah. generate more free cash. And I think the other thing in a more inflationary world is to have great balance sheets. Obviously, Microsoft has net cash on its balance sheet. So if interest rates rise and they don't have to service it, you know, pay more to service their debt. So that's been a good one for us. But to be honest, Pete, look, we, we, you know, Microsoft's not our biggest investment anymore. The way the world's moving, we've actually got a 
airline parts supplier is our and biggest investment because we think the world's reopening and we think the world's basically going back to a, to normal. What's the name of that company, Charlie? It's called Hiker. I think I've uh, spoken to you about it before. It's a, about 30 billion market cap US, um, US industrial stock, just a great business with a majority family ownership. So just a, a more, in, more traditional industrial business that should have great leverage to the aviation sector recovering. So just, just things like that. We are thinking a little bit differently as the world changes a bit, Pete. Yeah, okay. So you know, there was a time when, you know, your, your, the companies you like were, uh, there was a, a, a beauty um, company, was it L'Oreal was one of your- We're big in Estee Lauder, that's still in the portfolio. That's done very well for us. Obviously people go back to work and the, the women, they want to put makeup on and things like that. So that's been a good good play on reopening also on as travel cups up. So a lot of people obviously buy makeup and things when they're traveling through airports. So that's been a good one, Estee Lauder, just a great, super high quality business. But look, we don't change much, Pete. I mean, the, the thing you want to get through to investors is you don't want to be chopping and changing the whole time. You know, you don't pick and stick with great businesses, but we also will sell something if, if the facts change. And recently we sold out of PayPal because they were, you know, rumoured to look at a, a $50 billion acquisition of a thing called Pinterest, which is completely in a completely different sector to what they do. And that actually proved to be a good decision selling out of PayPal and the shares have actually gone down a bit. So, but so we'll, we will change things, Pete, but only if the, the, the management really veers off course or our thesis changes. Okay. Um, so apart from the aviation company, just tell us that company again. Heiko, it's called Heiko. And the ticker code is? H-E-I. Okay. Um, apart from that, have there been any other new additions, albeit a smaller one, to your to your fund? Yeah, nothing really, Pete. We've just, you know, been tinkering a little bit, I think, is the idea. But we are, we do think about, and I think all of us have to think about a slightly more inflationary world. You know, what sort of businesses do you want to own if these higher prices for goods and services and labour and energy all stay around for a while? And, I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty hard for a central bank to fix port congestion in Los Angeles. Pretty hard for a central bank to fix a semiconductor shortage which is leading to used car prices going through the roof and no one be able to buy a new car. Pretty hard for a central bank to fix an underinvestment in oil when no one's really invested in oil for the last two or three years because of ESG concerns. So a lot of this inflationary pressure and also quite a lot of people retired from the workforce in the, in the, in the COVID, you know, COVID correction. They just decided that's enough of working. So you've got four or five factors that I don't think central banks can actually do anything with interest rates to fix in the short term. Yes. So it's, you know, in that environment, I think you've got to really be selective in what you own. Own businesses that control more of their outcome or have, as I say, pricing power. And it's even a company that you and I've talked about a lot, like Louis Vuitton, because you've got to think about supply chain and pricing power. Louis Vuitton pretty much makes its own makes its own garments, makes its own leather goods. It has its own supply chain, so it's not interrupted. Unsurprisingly, a business like that is trading at its all-time highs. Mm-hmm. So it's a much... It's, it's, this is a, a slightly trickier pe- period, Pete. We haven't seen a CPI print of 6% since you were a teacher at Sydney Grammar, my friend. You know, it's, it's been a while. Now, does it stay around? Well, maybe for another year or so, there might be more, a few of these interruptions, I think. That was my next question. The, the argument with economists and central bankers is that this inflation is transitory. Now, when I think about that, I think, well, 
As we move towards normalcy, a lot of these supply chain problems should disappear. Good. And so I'm giving it six months. So I'm, I'm thinking it'll take six months. So I think Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan kind of has the same kind of view that, that we could be surprised how quickly this stuff gets fixed up because businesses do react to stimuli like, oh, microchip, microchips are hard to get. How long are they going to allow those problems to persist for? It is interesting to see. I think there's two fundamental things that will stay firm. I think there is the wage prices are going up. People's wages are going up. And some of it in America, that is a fundamental structural change. So I think there is a bit of wage price inflation, which is good for consumerism. It's good for the stock market, actually, if it's not out of control. People getting paid a bit more, more money in the system. So I think that's definitely going to hang around. I also think fossil fuel prices, and this is not my view on fossil fuels before everyone shouts me down, will remain higher than people think for longer as we transition to a green energy world because no one's invested in these damn things and, and there's, not a, there's not a supply response as planes get back in the sky, trains, boats, everything, everything starts moving again. So I think wages and energy prices will remain firm. They're a reasonable part of CPI. The rest of it, I agree with you. A lot of the supply chain stuff is actually getting containers in the right place after all the border closures, all the logistics closures, all the trucks are in the wrong places. I think through time that will be fixed. So I do think supply chains and semiconductor issues will be inverted commas transitory without sounding like an investment, what are they called, a central banker. But energy and uh, wages, I think, could stay quite firm. But there's nothing wrong with a little bit of inflation, Pete. Mm. You know, it's actually good for the right equities because they can increase their profit margins if they pass on to pass on to the consumer. And if the consumer's getting paid a bit more in terms of higher wages, that's okay too. Yeah. Now, I, I read something today which I thought was quite brilliant, which I actually wrote. <laughs> uh, but I'd like to see whether you agree with me. <laughs> and and my, my, the history of interest rate rises for, after a recession and a stock market comeback is that when the, when the central bank eventually surprises the market and raises interest rates, there is a short-term sell-off. But it takes a few interest rate rises before the market really gets scared. And so that first one often is a buying opportunity, that first interest rate yeah. rise, that first overreaction from the market. And that's why I, I kind of predicted might happen when the US Fed in particular moves on interest rates. Is that a fair call, do you think? Yeah, generally, I think that's how history's played out, Pete, in my, my memory of how different interest rate cycles and equity markets have worked pretty much. Look, I think just this time around, rather than worrying about the cash rate or a movement in the cash rate from naught to 20 bips or something, it's irrelevant, isn't it? You're still going to, are you going to put your money on deposit at a bank at 20 bips? No, you're not. You know, you're going to stay in risk assets, you're going to stay in property, you're going to stay in shares, you're going to, you know, what interest rate do we have to get to before people actually put their money back in the bank? I mean, it's not 0.2. Yeah. It's going to be three, three and a half. Correct. You want term deposits at three or something, and we're a long way from that, Peter. Yeah. I think with, for the share market, though, you can get corrections driven by you know, changes in the discount rate. Now, if the long bond market starts to think this inflationary pressure is real and sustainable and the Fed and everyone else is massively behind the curve and the long bond market starts you know, rising in yield, that is, that is much more likely to trigger a, a sell-off in equities, but led by technology stocks and unprofitable tech stocks and all these things that have benefited from really, really low discount rates, so my team and I, you know, when we're just sitting there every morning, we keep a very close eye on US 10-year bonds, US 30-year bonds, just to see where they are, look, look where yield curves are, look where 
tips are, all this sort of stuff. The bond market will give you, inverted commas, a tip-off on if an equity market correction is coming. And if it's going to be a correction, it will be led by the highest flying leaders of the last you know, three or four years that have all benefited from super low interest rates. Mm. Now, that, that makes me forced, be forced, in a sense, to ask you a pretty provocative question, Charlie, which, you know, I'd be very intrigued to see how you answer it. Paul Ricard often looks at the bond market and now remember Paul was a guy who started the bond market and then eventually created, helped, well, helped create Comsec at CBA. So he became stockbroker. In fact, was stockbroker of the year apparently and other stockbrokers booed him because they didn't, ah. like, they didn't like the arrival of online. I actually think I was at that event. I kid you not. I think I do remember that. I might have even booed him. <laughs> and the interesting thing is he often says that the bond market guys are smarter than the stockbrokers. Now, you're you're a stockbroker guy, um, but you are looking to the bond market on the belief that it can actually The bond you. market is the biggest market in the world, and it, it, it sets expectations of future interest rates, quite simply, Pete. Yep. Now, as a guy who we, we all must be aware in the equity market that super low interest rates and super low discount rates has seen things, you know, many share prices, particularly things that have no earnings or no profits yet, go crazy. But in America, we're starting to see some of that change. You know, as recently as last week, companies like Zillow, 60% off their high. Zoom, which we're doing today, 60% off their high. Um, you know, even, even Tesla was down 12% the other night and things like that. You're starting to see a bit of profit taking on the in some of these very, very expensive and richly priced next generation tech stocks, or whatever you want to call them, as these bond yields just eke up a little bit in, in America. So I think the bond market for an equity person is strongly worth watching. It, it's going to give you the signal that maybe there's opportunities ahead. Like even we've got a little bit more cash now, just maybe just see what comes, you know, just be sensible, Pete. I, I, I don't believe this transition will be without volatility. And there's always a bit, right? Yeah. Yep. One final one, Charlie. Uh, and we've asked you this over the years and, I was much more cynical towards Bitcoin a year ago. You're starting to see a lot more people thinking cryptocurrency has a future. It will have you know, more acceptance over time. What's your latest take on the cryptocurrency acceptance? Oh, look, we don't accept it into, as an investment in the fund. No. <laughs> no. In my fund, you've got to still send me Australian dollars. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm a, some sort of dinosaur who doesn't get it. Look, it's not my field of confidence, Pete. It hasn't been. It still isn't. You know, we have some exposure in a funny way to things like MasterCard, which are heading a little bit that way and, as you know, payments, et cetera. But, look, I think it's too many people like me who are not well enough versed in it have too stronger opinions. I know that's a cop-out, but I just don't feel I'm educated in it and probably shouldn't have an opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only reason I care about it is that more and more people are asking about it and more and more uh, people are actually saying, like even Paul Ricard is actually saying that he can see it being a store of value, value as a, a speculative asset, much like gold, much like artwork, because it's a limited supply and that they, they do have a very big fan base. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. Look, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. You know, the, the market cap's $2.7 trillion, you know, mm -hmm. if you think about the, the crypto base. But look... For me, I just it's just not a field of competence. You know, we do, what we do in the fund is stick to what we know. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go off on tangents and buy some crypto exchange that's listed in New York because you feel that your investors want to see that in the fund. No, 
Let's, let's control what we control, just own great businesses, be ready for a bit more inflationary pressure and own businesses that can pass on that inflationary pressure and generate higher profits. And I think we just got to keep it pretty simple at the moment, Pete. Okay. Charlie Aiken, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Well, I'm joined by the Chief of Research and Economics at Domain, Nicola Powell. Dr. Nicola Powell, let's give her a full title. Thanks for coming to the program. Hello, thanks for having me. So, Nicola, there's lots of, I guess, anxiety around uh, at the moment linked to uh, real estate. Some people are anxious about house prices continually going up and people missing out at auctions and open house sales. On the other hand, you've got predictions of big uh, price uh, decreases, uh, interest rates rising, APRA getting involved, telling banks to lend less, all those sorts of things going on right now. So let's just try and drill down to what you see in your very accurate crystal ball because you're a doctor. Well, I think we all put our our best uh, foot forward, don't we, when we're trying to predict where um, Australia's favourite sport is going, and that is the market. Um, You know, we all watch it very uh, intently, and I think, you know, it's been such an 18 months in terms of an upswing, um, you know, as a result of the pandemic. You know, when we have a look, we released our recent price series only last week. So that was on the September quarter. And there were some really interesting trends now starting to unravel, which are different to what we were seeing earlier in the year. And I think that helps us to provide that insight into where 2022 will go in terms of uh, property price. When you have a look across that combined capital city uh, house price, they rose 3.5% over the September quarter. We've got that combined capital city house price now nearly, it's almost at a million dollars, which is just a remarkable figure to have Mm. as our combined capital city. But overall, it's the fastest rate of growth on record. It's up nearly 22% over the year. Obviously, it varies depending upon the city. We've seen some cities have much stronger rates of growth. But I think what we've seen over the last year is really um, an extraordinary performance of houses compared to units. Houses have grown about three times faster than units. But as I mentioned, there were some Uh, changes that we saw um, in terms of trends over the September quarter. Um, And we've started to see that the pace of growth now has eased. We saw it over the June quarter and it was confirmed again over the September quarter. So it shows that we're losing some of that momentum. Um, So what we're expecting moving forward into 2022 is that we are expecting prices to continue to rise, but they are going to be at a much slower rate. Um, I think, you know, we're still gonna have a very low interest rate environment. And, you know, we're of the view that the RBA uh, won't lift those rates until we have consistent annual wage growth around three to four percent and that core inflation sustainably within its kind of target band of that two to three percent. So it does imply that those interest rates are going to remain low for some time and they may start rising late into 2022 or in uh, to 2023. I think the interest rate move higher is going to be earlier than that was initially uh, anticipated, which was 2024. I think we're looking late 2022 or 2023. Well, in that context, you know, that was a good summary of what you're seeing out there. I'd like to throw into the mix the forecast from Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital, who's a very good forecaster historically. And he thinks that once interest rates start to rise, 
it could set off a 20% fall in house prices across the country. What's your feeling about that pretty big call? So it is a big call and he does have a really good track record in terms of forecasting around property prices. And, you know, I did have a dive into what they released. Um, and I think, you know, overall, um, high household debt to income ratio makes borrowers very sensitive to any interest rate changes. And I think that is why we're all, you know, uh, discussing when we think interest rates are going to, to rise, because we are highly indebted as Australians. And we know that interest rate changes are a key driver of housing market turns. And, you know, when you have a look at downturns in more recent times, they have become more severe over time. If we have a look at that 2017 to 2019 uh, downturn, we saw house prices across the combined capital cities drop about 8%. That's greater than we saw during uh, the GFC. And obviously, APRA uh, was highly involved in that. You know, we had those macro prudential constraints on lending. And we started to see that come into play now. You know, we've, we've now got a move uh, on lending, which came into fruition on the 1st of November. But I think when I had a look at the, the modelling, I think, you know, there's things to keep in mind when you're looking at a, a model that is predicting a 15 to 25% drop. Um, what the model does is it, um, from my understanding, is it has it comes from the assumption that the RBA are going to normalise the cash rate. So that means lifting interest rates by about 100 basis points or more, but it is assuming that these inc increases in interest rates are going to occur rapidly. And by rapidly, I mean within a 12-month period. So that is a shift, and it's going to be uh, probably a bit of a rude awakening for those that haven't experienced an interest rate hike before, because there will be some Australians out there that haven't. Um, and that's where that model has come and with the output of a 15 to 25% uh, decline. Where our view sits is I'm not convinced that we will see the RBA move this quickly. I think what the RBA will do is make uh, move more slowly in terms of its interest rate hikes. Um, because they understand the impact that that could have on house prices and the flow on impact on the wealth effect and the spending within the economy. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. And, and I interviewed Chris um, yesterday um, for this week's uh, podcast, and he basically said the same thing, that if, they, if the Reserve Bank raises slower than is expected, then the house price fall could be a lot less. And that's a, a view that he totally agreed with. Let's go to another interesting trend we've seen. This is um, regional property prices. I think the last ones I saw actually rose faster than capital cities, but maybe I'm wrong. But certainly the shift to the regions and the, therefore the demand and the price action um, is quite historically significant, I, I would presume. Absolutely. And there was a period of time there we saw our regionals outpace in terms of growth at the combined capital cities. So I think that is a huge milestone for our regional markets. And we have seen this spotlight um, into uh, regional Australia. Our recent house price report has also shown the same trend as what we've seen in our combined capital cities. That pace of quarterly growth is, is beginning to ease. But even that being said, it's the strongest annual rate of growth in 17 years. So we really have seen an uptick in prices. It is a bit of a different outcome across the different regional areas and across the different states and territories. We've got the strongest rates of regional growth in regional New South Wales, regional Vic and regional Tasmania. 
And what's interesting, you know, those are three states that are most impacted by the affordability issues associated with their respective capital cities. They have high house prices in that their respective capital cities. We have a look towards, say, regional New South Wales. We have seen that pace of quarterly growth ease. It's dropped by one fourth um, compared to the prior quarter. But again, you know, it's the strongest rate of growth in you know roughly 17 years. Regional New South Wales up almost 19% over the past year. The one I found interesting was regional Victoria. We're seeing pretty consistent quarterly growth. I would probably say that's the one that it's eased marginally over the quarter. So I think there's still lots of momentum in that regional Victoria market. And we know that in regional Victoria, that's where we have seen a bit of a, a, a big shift and a big movement of residents leaving um, the city of Melbourne into uh, regional Victoria. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the strongest rates of growth in 18 years in, in regional Victoria. And the other one I did want to mention was regional Tasmania. I mean, Hobart has got record high prices. Um, it's gone from one of the most affordable to now certainly not being one of the most affordable. Um, and we're seeing that impact in regional Tasmania as well. And we're still seeing accelerating growth in house prices in regional, regional Tas. Mm. So we've got the, the, the demographic shift out of expensive capital cities to the regions. Throw on top of that the work from home trend, which has escalated since the coronavirus. Do you think this tr this trend, albeit maybe at a slower rate, is going to be something that we will see entrenched in the real estate characteristics of Australia? I think partly. Um, what the pandemic has done is really created the greatest social and lifestyle uh, change since post-World War. Um, it is global. Um, you know, we're seeing these trends come out in other markets. So, for example, in the UK, the same thing is happening. People are moving into the country. They're moving into, they want larger homes. The same thing is happening here. Um, so I do think in a way it's going to leave a bit of a legacy. And I think the difference is um, Australian migration patterns have changed as a result of the pandemic because we've seen um, we're already seeing a migration away from our more expensive capital cities prior to the pandemic. And that's important to note. So we were seeing that flow of people away from Sydney into those regional markets since around 2015. It was gaining traction. What the pandemic did is it accelerated those trends. And I think, you know, in some of these areas, we've got people moving who are prime in their working years. And that's the difference. You know, it's not um, pre or, or retiree aged uh, Australians, you know, moving into, say, let's, there's an example, Southeast Queensland, which we know is a retirement haven for, for those in their, their early or in their retirement years. We've got people moving prime in their working years. And that is a real impact of what we've seen as a result of COVID. And, you know, I, I look at the impact that COVID has had and the ability and the, and the proof, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, we're able to work effectively and efficiently from home. And I think that we won't revert back to five days in the office. I think we're going to be hard pressed to convince a millennial where they can purchase an affordable house in regional Australia and perhaps only go into the city two days a week. The interesting trend that what that is going to do is it's going to increase the, you know, the sweet spot around our, our city working hubs. You know, traditionally, you say it's 150 kilometres of, you know, that commutable distance. Maybe that's going to push out slightly. Maybe it means more people are, are, will go, OK, I don't mind doing that slightly longer commute. I think it's opened the doors for some in terms of affordability. It means that they can relocate elsewhere, get more value for money, get that Australian dream. 
And I think we're going to be hard pressed to, to, to change that view. And I think some of it in part will reverse because we've seen in some regional areas, we've seen such a demand in the rental market. And what that says is it's temporary. It's almost like people have gone on a bit of a gap year, you know, to escape COVID, to escape those lockdowns, um, to live in a less dense area. Part of that will reverse, but I think we've seen such strong demand in the sales market. We've seen significant rates of growth in some of our regional markets. That says that it's not temporary. That says that it's a permanent uh, move mm. and relocation. And that was Dr. Nicola Power, the Chief Economist at Domain. And that's the show for this uh, week. And we're back on Monday, of course. If you want to know more about us, go to switzerreport.com.au. And that's where we'll give you a lot more companies and the analysis that goes with it to tell you whether it's a buy or a sell. Once again, thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday night.